Veterans Broadcast Network, this is Roll Call. What role did you play in your call to duty? You're listening to Veterans Roll Call. I'm Kennedy Camp. And I'm Nadine Noki. in Sarasota, Florida. We just finished an incredible Veterans Day weekend, and I'm really uh, happy and proud to be a part of that. I met so many wonderful people, found out about so many different organizations that are doing so much for the veterans here. Uh, With everything that is going on in the world, we know that we have a lot of complications with the veteran world as well. A lot of that's trying to be solved. Veterans Broadcast Network is looking into helping that as much as we can. I want to thank right off the bat our sponsors, GTS Trucking, of course, and Dallas Corporation. Signing up a few more, as I hear, over the next couple of weeks. So uh, keep plugging in on it with us, and we'll see where we go. It was amazing that while I was on the uh, uh, parade route with so many different veterans, that we had three different schools. I would say there must have been, oh, 400, three to 400 high schoolers, all dressed in uniform, all marching, some of them with uh, drummers and some of them just on cadence and some of them singing songs. It was really a proud thing to see that our little city here uh, has so much involvement with the military world. Uh, I know one of the characters, uh, I believe it was Colonel uh, Dan Kennedy, was one of the people who started uh, Sarasota Military Academy years ago and turned out to be a really positive thing for so many. Well, I'd like to introduce you to Nadine, but she's uh, hung up on a Lady Brigade project, so hopefully she'll be coming into the studio shortly. Uh, In the meantime, uh, I'll be uh, handling the the mic by myself for a little while until I bring on our guest, uh, Mike Burns. Uh, He was a captain in the Air Force, Uh, unfortunately one of those who got shot down. He's got a tremendous story to tell about who he is and what he's doing now. And part of what he's doing now is going to be an inspirational story, I think, for a lot of people, especially those uh, of us who are concerned about what's happening to our climate and our world. Um, he, he's quite a, an amazing guy that uh, you'll be uh, talking to in just a few minutes. Uh, there's an organization I recently learned about called the Veterans Path to Hope. Dot org, And you know how each uh, radio time when I start off, I'd like to turn you on to somebody new or a telephone number that works for you. Uh, I really think you should check out veteranspathtohope.org, especially if you know some veterans that are, are searching for more hope and more realities on what we can do to make things better for a veteran or a veteran's life. Uh, I have a, a dear friend named Lisa who's been taking care of her former husband even, who uh, has gone through a a lot of bad times physically. And uh, she has been able to maneuver with a little bit of help from some people, the the ability for the VA to assist 
him and assist her in making sure that he doesn't end up in a homeless realm, that he doesn't end up in uh, one of the uh, spaces that's not as healthy for him as it should be. So I, my hat's off to Lisa Hughes and, and her um, husband, that Larry, that makes everything a little bit better. Uh, I'm going to give you that phone number again. I think it's the most important one. I've got some friends of mine uh, calling it over this week, and that's the VA special hotline at the White House. I know it sounds a little strange, but there are actually veterans now in the White House helping to work with veterans. We know that we have VA benefit hotlines and we have VA center hotlines and the Bill of Rights hotline and everything, but give that White House a call if you need some help. And that number is 855-948-2311. I was very proud uh, on uh, Veterans Day to not only be in a parade, but I attended uh, some veteran affairs afterwards that were quite unique. And then when I stopped to have a dinner by myself, I uh, said hi to a couple people who thanked me for my service. And we talked for a few minutes and they were in visiting town here. So I just sat down by myself outside and they were inside and, um, it was very nice, a simple little meal, nice little glass of wine. And when I went to pay, I found out they paid it uh, for me. It was just a really sweet, sweet gesture on their part. They had already left and we said goodbye to each other. But um, Bill and Jane, I thank you very much for, for that nice little treat. It was a, a real sweet one for me. And um, then we ended up at Fogartyville. That's a unique space here in our town. It's, it's part of our community radio station. And then they have this community center, so to speak, both indoor and outdoor. You know, being in Florida, folks up north, I'm sorry to say we have indoor and outdoor almost all year round. And, uh, Pretty bad, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be introducing to Mike in a minute because uh, he, he was one of the characters there with me. And, and then we met a man, or I met a man, who I believe I knew back in New York uh, named Bill Shustick. Uh, did I say shoe stick or like a shoe stick? A shoe stick. Uh, okay, shoe stick. <laughs> yeah, who um, uh, did some very amazing things that uh, I was very proud of, having to do with a guitar and a dulcimer, and then he pulled up a ukulele, and then I, it was just like crazy. But I believe I knew him back in the '70s when I was going through my uh, uh, medical changes via out of the army to via into civilian life. And then I got into the show business world with a lot of uh, different people there. And I'm almost positive I saw him and met him back in those days. The name just strikes a lot of familiarity. So he's here tonight. He's going to talk to a little bit about his support for the veterans. Uh, because our show is not only about talking to a veteran, but talking to those people who want to help and those people that are helping veterans as we go along. And then the, I guess the proudest thing was also to be able to uh, archive and listen to, which you can go to our uh, website, uh, www.nifv.net. That's the National Institute for Veterans, uh, or their veteransradiohour.com. And you could archive and listen to General Dave Grange's show. It was fantastic. I think it ran about an hour and a half or longer. Uh, he had some incredible guests on, uh, talking about PTSD, talking about the world and transitioning out of the Army and, and into, or Navy or Air Force or Marines or Coast Guard, and then uh, finding their way into life. And it was um, most inspiring, and I, I congratulate the General now, and 
and um, Major Doug with him uh, on it. Uh, I thought the closing of the show was very inspirational and very poignant for our our way of life right now in, in the veteran world. And then there's always, uh, remember, on Monday nights, we have Patrick Scrogan. He's unfortunately also another person got shot down um, or crashed his helicopter in Iraq. Uh, my guest tonight uh, was... Uh, in Vietnam and uh, was one of those unfortunate ones uh, to end up as a POW. He's going to be telling us his story, but before I do, uh, I'm going to bring him on uh, Mike Burns, uh, Captain Michael Burns at one time. Right. Um, One time since reduced to uh, normal status. And now now normal status. But you do a lot with the Thomas Paine project that we have here in Sarasota. Right. Well, you're talking about the um, once-in-a-year dinner that we have. Oh, yeah, we we have... um, Well, Thomas Paine was brought to us back about that when we started about 16 years ago by a professor from the University of uh, Wisconsin. And um, since then, he's become our patron, kind of. We, We kind of look... We've all read about him, and we decided that this... He, he speaks such truth to um, the pinings of democracy and the kind of country we all hope this would be. We, um, he shows up everywhere. So we honor him once. We, we honor his birthday. We celebrate it. He's, I think we have the 278th celebration, something like that, coming up in late January, early February. We have a speaker. Um, we we give a Tom Paine award to someone who's done something for the community along the lines of Thomas Paine, and uh, we um, toast to Paine and we give a little historical. Have you ever heard? These are the times that try men's souls. It was written by Thomas Paine, George Washington, when they were suffering one of those years in a forest in Pennsylvania, hiding out from the British. He had Payne put together something that could give some uh, up the morale of his troops. They were deserting by the dozens, and he wrote it, first of the crisis papers. That's Thomas Payne. He's a strong man, not recognized today. Though he should be. Though he should be, and I won't tell you why he's not recognized, because we don't want to get... Do your own research. Yeah, do your own research. (laughs) So tell me about where did you uh, come from originally before you got into service? Uh, Indiana, Fort Wayne, family, nine kids in a two-bedroom house. Um, well, Dad ultimately cleared out the attic. It was still a two-bedroom house, one bathroom. Um, and we, uh, seven kids, nine total people. We went to college um, locally. I graduated from DePaul University, and while there, I wanted to make sure I had a job when I left because uh, I didn't really know. Joined ROTC. When I was a senior, they gave us this test. If you want to be a pilot in the Air Force, here's the test. And I took it and I thought, this is unbelievably simple. So um, I passed and um, got into pilot school in Enid, Oklahoma, and graduated, got into the F 4. And from there, we left the country. An F-4 meaning a jet? F-4 Phantom is a 50,000-pound, it was one of the huge 
in the early 60s, it was built twin engine, uh, two seater, two throttles. It had the world's, it had the uh, ability to zoom. You When you drop a payload and pull up, it thing just uh, outruns almost everything to a certain altitude. It was one of the main jets in Vietnam along with the F-105. And that's that's the plane I got stuck with. Uh-huh. And then when you learn how to fly and you're in the Air Force now, you came out as the rank of what, lieutenant, I would imagine? First lieutenant? Second, Second lieutenant. lieutenant, yes. 90-day wonder. And um, then, well, I was uh, went to F-4 school and then sent to Ubon, Thailand, where I flew 18 missions before I was shot down. And these 18 missions were out of Thailand into Vietnam? Into South Vietnam, um, into North Vietnam, uh, but we couldn't go above a certain parallel. I seem to remember it was the 18th parallel because Johnson had a limited bombing in that time. I was there in 1968. And so the Navy had the next uh, a quadrant above us, but we, the Air Force flew in the, between the 17th and the 18th parallel. And that's where I was shot down. And these missions were all bombing missions, or were there any supply missions? No, no, we, they were all, every mission I flew on, looking down, it was either night, didn't see anything except flashes of guns shooting at us, or jungle. In the daytime, it was just barely could see the roads winding in and out of the jungle. And so we would look for roads. If you couldn't find anything moving, you drop six, 750-pound bombs on a road or in a creek. When I was there, there weren't that many targets down there. A lot of guns, a lot of Vietnamese guns. They were all over the place. Yeah, okay. On that word, we're going to take a quick little break, a little bit of a breather here, and be coming back and talking with Mike and what happened uh, after the shot down and where he went to and what that was all about. We'll be back after this message. We are. Roll call. We'll be right back after these messages. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. 
high-quality printing services, and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Roll Call. Here's your host, Kenny DeCamp. All I do is a double time. Hey, thank you, Mark and Midge, back in those studios, helping us make sure this gets out across. I'm here with Captain, former Captain, Mike Burns, uh, who's now a member with me of the Florida Veterans for Common Sense. Are you also a member of the Military Officers Association? No. You didn't join that one? No. And um, we uh, are talking about uh, uh, Mike's um, situation in, in life that he dealt with in Vietnam, this 1968, 18 missions, and then he got shot down. And do you know what area you were shot down in, in Vietnam? We were shot down about 10, 15, 20 miles, something like that, north of the dividing line between North and South Vietnam. It was a temporary dividing line. It wasn't anything permanent, supposedly. But that's where I was shot down. It was um, a bunch of guns at the base of a hill that we saw sticking out and decided to try to bomb them. And as we came down the chute, the guns opened up, and you could see tracers flying all over the canopy. And if I could whack this table... It sounded like a sledgehammer hitting the bottom of the airplane. But that F-4 is a sturdy thing. We pulled out right over that hill, and as we were going up and banked, I looked back to see where the bombs hit. And if I could reach out and touch the back of that airplane, that was a ball of fire from above. It was two-thirds of the airplane was on fire. I couldn't see the tail. And so we uh, headed out toward the South China Sea. I don't know how far you went. And... Um, look back, the fire was out, but there was smoke still coming out of the engine, so we knew the fire was burning internally. And we thought we'd get out far enough over that South China Sea, and you could, if the plane went down then, you could have a good chance of getting picked up. But we never got that far. The airplane, at about 8,000 feet, it just started winding down. One engine was on full afterburner, and the other one was dead. And then it it did its crazy thing. It slammed down, and I I heard why. It's something that uh, goes through the hydraulics when there's a leak. It slammed down, threw us up in the canopy, then jerked upward and bounced our face off our laps and stood there for about just a few seconds and then fell off into this um, dizzying uh, uh, stall. Just fell out of the sky. You could see the earth go by, the green jungle, the earth, and um, we jumped out, pulled the, reached down and pulled this iron handle and bang, it just, it's a 14G kick that knocks you out of the airplane, clear of it, and then there's a rocket, a rocket's on the back of this steel seat that drive about two to 300 feet, clear, and um, without doing a thing, it all breaks loose, there's a chute pops out, 
and you end up in the chute. The seat drops away, and you're, when I finally got my vision, it's a 4G rocket ride, which if you're not, it's nothing, but if you're not ready, it'll take the blood out of your head. And when I got my vision back, we, I was in the chute, coming down through a cloud, and how many other, new life, huh? How many other people on the plane? One. Oh, just he two. made it too, him, him and I. He made it just like I did. And then you hit the land, the ground, and the Kong were there? Well, right. So I heard this huge explosion, and that was our airplane that hit not far away. And um, then I could hear snapping sounds that I was told later that the bullets, if they're going faster than sound, the bullets that go by you. But I landed in a wide open field, Kenny. It was, um, there was no place to hide, just. He had a perfect parachute landing roll, by the way. Um, and the sergeant that taught us, how, you know, taught sergeants teach you how to jump off one footer, then two footer and roll. And honest to goodness, when I hit that ground and stood up, I had a flash of that sergeant <laughs> saying, God damn, it's a good, good PLF, Burns. I really, I, I saw it, then it disappeared. And so I started um, hiding my chute. Like it, everything is trained. I didn't think a thought, just hid the chute, got my radio out, called that other F4. There were two of us flying around. He said, we didn't see you. Give us a, he said, give me a position from that smoke over there. And it's but column of black smoke with our burning F4. And so I laid my compass down and said, it's 045, about two miles. And the other pilot up there said, Okay, head west, we'll try a pickup in the morning. Well, there's nothing west but scrub. If I ran for 24 hours top speed, I might get into some high country and some weeds, but oh, I started running and um, I ran out of wind really quickly. Uh, I, I still had my G suit on, I noticed. And I thought it was the smoking because I remember thinking, I got to quit smoking. So I took that G suit off and buried it and then I could hear the gunfire all around. You could hear this bap, bap, and brap, and boom, boom. It was kind of a loose circle. I couldn't see anybody. So I hid. I saw this bush. It was the only bush within 20 miles, about 12 feet high. I swear it was the only one. Crawled into it, pulled all the weeds back behind me like they say to do in survival school, and, uh, and waited. And after a few minutes, got real quiet. After a few minutes, a little ancient Vietnamese man came crash, crashing, walking through into the bush. And we, I just turned and watched him. And by the way, I took out my 38. I thought, if there's somebody between me and a helicopter, I'll use it. But I don't need it now. Anyway, I just watched him come. His eyes met mine. And he screamed and ran out. And about five guys piled through this bush. They were just standing on the outside of it. I didn't know it. Well, that's how I got started. That's then the, the days began. You. Yes, yeah. And when I got out of there, the whole village was out. There were men, women, children. These are militia guys. They're pith helmet, white strapped shirts, and gray pants. Village militia, and they were everywhere. And so that's then the, every, the, everybody faded away, and we started. I put 
took all my clothes off except my shorts, put wire around my arms and pulled it way in the back. And I remember letting out a breath because it, it hurt really bad. It just jerked it. Then this guy got around, looked at my face and let out a little wire until I, he saw me breathe. And then that's where he stopped it. It was a nice gesture on his part. And so that's when it started. And then where did they take you to? Well, well, then they got to get me to a truck to Hanoi. So I was actually in this in a village for 35 days, not in a village, in separate villages before we reached Hanoi. So I got a view of the countryside. I got a view of the people who lived down there. Um, they, they, uh, we'd walk on a road, and one of the guards, there were three of them, would leave the path and go somewhere. And I could hear, he went into a village to find some place to stay the night. And I could hear yelling and screaming, and he'd come running out and say, go. This is the place we've been dropping bombs for four years. So we probably killed a bunch of these folks around here. And they were angry, so we'd just take off running, and they would, you know, rifle butts, go. They were scared because they didn't. Well, they were scared, I could see in their face. And then we'd outrun things and then come to another village until we finally found one, spent the night. There were two other guys shot down. Well, the other crewman on my plane, and um, he was okay. So we at, joined up. They put us together somewhere. He, I don't know where he landed. And then an F-105 guy that um, I'm very close to, he's about 10, 15 years older than I am. And he looked like a burnt toast when they drug him into this um, hooch. Do do you want me to go on? Well, we found the village where I stayed for 20 days. And it's it's underground. It's about eight feet high mud walls. The only thing above ground is the the palm frond roof, uh, stacked roof. So you go out the front door and it's a trench. And somewhere you go up on the ground, but it's trench to trench. They were ready you know they were ready to um stay safe i guess and so we were held there for 20 days i was held in a cave it was about three feet high six feet deep and crumpler the other guy who was a major was in a cave on the other it's about a 12 by 15 room his cave went about three or four feet high and he said it was about 20 feet back there and that was the better cave to have because they gave me my flight suit back when we got there and boots. So I put my boots on my fist like this and my back against that cave because all day long it would be sticks po- poking, rocks getting thrown in, um, people trying yes, people trying to drag me out and um, then once in a while they pull us out of there and tied us to a stake and it would be uh, um, show and tell. The whole countryside would come through and look and some would, I got kicked in the face or someone like grab your hair and rock away. And We had a guard. This guard had kept us alive up till just south of Hanoi. This, he was about four, five feet tall or less. His gun was taller than he was. Wow his rifle. Anyway, he would let it go on unless he thought it was getting out of hand. Then he'd come over and shoot people. When they gave us food, uh, we 
eight, and they honestly no no order given. They'd all fade in the background and stay silent. They it was reverence. We get a cigarette. We'd get a cigarette once in a while. They'd all back up. That was the so we smoked slowly, and ate slowly, and um, amazing. So one night after twenty days, it's a whole many things that happened there, Kenny, and, and it would be a too long to sure. go through them. We got taken out, walks seemed forever at night, and there was a truck on the road sitting there engine running and they were piling stuff on it and they put there were three of us in on the back of that truck and we started well we went west to the Ho Chi Minh Trail all night and then we turned north I could I could see the stars we were tied to the side of the truck but so that that started our trek north and did you end up in the Hanoi Hilton or something like no it? yeah everybody started well I got my first be, welcome to Hanoi Beating. Before we got to the big, it's a big French-built prison. I don't, I don't know if you've seen that, but it's um, it's an ugly place. It's very dark inside. I remember we backed that truck up. It was in the summer up to that gate, and they opened the flap. You could hardly see, but the entrance to it looked like it was all dark. It looked like if you walked through there, you fall into this abyss, that's what I thought, never be seen again. But inside it was interrogation rooms, structure, um, you know, rules, uh, uh, some beatings, a lot of torture from other other guys. I was pretty lucky in that respect. So that started it. Yeah, that's an amazing story. You know, being in the medical field, it's one thing for me to hear this. Uh, Anyway, we're going to be right back after a brief message. We're going to catch our breath and focus a little bit more on our life that we have today. Be right back after this. Roll Call. We'll be right back after these messages. Attention. Looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Roll Call. Here's your host, Kenny DeCamp. Over the hill, over the hill, we will hit the dusty trail. And we'll 
Well, here we are in Sarasota, Florida, safe and sound, listening to a story of Captain Mike Burns, who got shot down in Vietnam. Um, we're to the point now where you're at the French prison, probably an ugly, dirty place. You're still being uh, beaten and tortured every now and then. And tell me about well, your first interrogation. Well, I I really was fortunate in this way that I received my welcome to Hanoi beating, but I was the youngest guy up there for about three years, and they figured out that, and honestly, they were much harder on the senior ranking people. They started at the top to get information, to um, try to get them to read on the radio, and I'll tell you about that in a minute, but, well, before we got to Hanoi, there was this village, and it was night, and um, there's the table, purple tablecloth, this uh, officer, Nice-looking guy, very friendly, and four fully armed, uh, like riot troops, they looked, but there was assault troops or something standing there. So we came in, sit on a stool, name, rank, serial number, date of birth, no problem. And they asked, what airplane were you flying? Of course they knew, and I said, I can't tell you that. Silliness. Well, at some point, they... uh, Put me in these, it's a standard thing they did up there. They put you in the ropes and there was uh, iron bars on the feet and it, it you get wrapped into this tight pretzel and beat on for a while. It started in the, it started in the early evening and it ended somewhere late at night. I, I really don't know when, but um, I was, uh, I was plastered against this post somehow. I don't even know how they did it, but uh when uh, I started getting kicked in the lower extremity, and I thought, this guy is crazy. And he was always saying, well, it's kicking me. You will be injured. You will be crippled forever. And he just he kept kicking me in. So um, I said, okay, F4. And they don't end, the, they don't end it when you end, want it. It goes on. They don't want you to have control over when things like that end. But it did. And... Um, I had to be drug out of there. It just saps your strength. There's just no way to, I mean, barely crawl. And they helped me out of there and put me back in this other room. And then uh, the next morning, we um, threw on the truck and drove the rest of the way to Hanoi. My thing up there was, the reason I, I think I got away with things is that Bobby Fan, he picked him up. He had a broken arm and a broken leg. And I had to carry him. I nursemaided him. Goble James had a broken leg. I, I firemen carried those guys like to the different places. Crumpler carried one. I carried one. And up in Hanoi, I was in a cell with those two. And they didn't say so, but I had to. We go to the wash rack once a week and throw water on us. So I would pick them up. And sometimes I had to help Bobby up on this black bucket that was our bathroom it's just a black bucket in the corner we call this black stallion um and so um well that that started it several in military interrogations and then it trailed off into political things quizzes we call them where we go up and sit on a stool for two or three or four hours and listen to the history listen to this stuff over and over again and 
Then they put a piece of paper and a pen and now you want to, are, are you guilty? You want to write um, saying how sorry you are uh, or they would uh, tell us what you think after this. That went on forever. And So this is them t- talking to you about the history of yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam and, and uh, imperialist forces right. and something to it. I found out later, but um, so, so uh, well, we moved. There's several places in that prison. There's there's um, small cells. I was in a two-man or three-man cell all the time until 1970, when Nixon jumped into uh, a camp. He, he had 80 special forces, brave guys, that dove into a uh, attacked a POW camp up there, the Sante raid. And when that happened. There was no POWs there. They had left about two weeks ago, I'm I'm told. But then the Vietnamese gathered all of us. They had us in separate places all around Hanoi, like 14 different camps. They put us all downtown in this big French-built room, like 60 men to a room. One room had 40 men. So we had um, uh, that kind of experience for about a year and a half. Then... When we when they did it, we organized. I got to meet. You know, there's a tap code we had. We, you couldn't talk above a whisper up there, and so this tap code is developed was developed by somebody, and we all learned it. We got to that prison in August, and for until January, we couldn't. We didn't have any contact. The three of us in this room, the two crippled guys and me. But we could hear banging and thumping and stuff. You could hear men's, you know, noises, um, coughing. And so one one day um, in January, this guy across the hall, Jerry Marvel, a Marine captain, got us under the door. And, and uh, I, I got down under the door. It's a big white door is about this thick, but the, it's a wide opening. And he told us the tap code. He said, break the alphabet down into fives. C and K are the same. Practice it and get on the wall, and uh, we'll talk to you. And usually, sound like a woodpecker convention. One of my friends said at night because everybody's talking, and um, and every, and somebody's watching the door under the door, waiting for the guard steps, trying to catch us communicating. But once we had that, we were on. Interesting. It's that's a call from your neighbor, and if if it's safe, you answer it back, and if it's not. You, you just thump the wall or do nothing. And so, God, I'm telling you, that was the lifeblood, being able to be in this group. Of communication. Wow. And so we learned who the SRO was down the hall, who was being tortured, who was in solitary confinement, who these four guys were, and, and it, it, it was a community based on the tap code. Incredible. And how, how long were you in captivity from? 56 months. 56 months. That was about average, honestly. We we took a, we did, in the big room, we got a chance to say who's, how many people have been tortured, and um, we, we, we figured out the average time was a little short of five years, because the first POW was 64, and I was there in 68, so they had about 300 guys before I even got there. Whoa. And, um... So, let's see, what, 
Do you have another question? I can't remember what I was saying. Well, the, the, the idea of being there so long um, t today, does it? Oh, I mean, I, I'll tell you, the first year I was there, I was so angry. I mean, I, they, somebody threw a gun through the bar window. I would have run out when they opened that door and, and knowing I'm going to go, but take as many as I could. But at some point, you've got to live with it. And because um, I didn't know how long it was going to last. I mean, there's, we got the biggest, we're the biggest monkey in the room. And we can, in the dry season, we got air support down south. We gain ground. The Arvin gains ground. In the wet season, the monsoon season, the North Vietnamese take it all back because there's no air power and the dry and it goes on and on and, and I thought, no, what's going to change this? And anyway, um, so. So how did you, when you finally got out, was that one during '72 or? Uh, Seventy. Well, the peace agreements were signed in '70. January '73, and 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 that that time about 200 of us they took us up to the Chinese border, a camp just outside of the Chinese border, it's still in Vietnam. I called um, I can't, it'll come to me, uh, it'll come to me. But anyway, at some time up there, Mel Pollock was looking. You know, there's always a hole or something in every cell. He was watching this dark courtyard and he saw empty trucks empty trucks he, the back was open and he was saying hey guys there's, there's a bunch of empty trucks coming in what's that mean um that means they're going to fill up something and go back well then the next morning commander opens the gate the guards are no guns smiling friendly the war's over you're going home and uh so the ride up to that camp was a 24-hour, it was the bumpiest road. We were either tied in back or handcuffed together in back, and, and there's no way to move, no pit stop, um, no water. And we got there. I could barely find my legs. It was just so wobbly until we got on the way back. They uh, put cloth on the handcuffs and handcuffed us together. We had smokes and even chocolates on the way back. And so they, they divided us up. First one shot with a really, there was about 21 guys who were going to die if they didn't get out of there pretty soon. They got taken out first in early February. Then it was the early shoot downs, the next group. I was in the third group. And then the people that were in that Hanoi bombing and the Christmas bombing stuff and all that. They remained, yeah. So, um, that has to be something. And when you got to, I guess, uh, Saigon, did they bring you to? No, or? no, we flew. I'll tell you what. Um, they gave us, that's the first time we saw Red Cross things, the first time. And we started seeing Caucasians out there through the guard windows. The bus came and loaded us all on the buses, and we drove to Geelong Airport, and there's this big, beautiful C-141 with a high tail in the back and a big oh, yeah. American flag on it. There was quite a few of those. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I thought, God, that's a beautiful airplane. And there was a colonel there, and they we get out, stand at attention in columns of two, and our name would be called. We'd go up, salute the colonel, shake his hand, and someone from the airplane would walk us to the airplane. Um, so... 
I remember we all got in that airplane and nobody was saying anything. Nobody was cheering. We got in, sat down, you know, we're, there'd been so many rumors, so many things that never panned out. Could be another rumor. I mean, they'll probably throw us back in. And we just sat there and, and finally they closed it up. You could feel that big air jet moving around and taxing. And then you felt the roar of it as it took off and we're still quiet. And it got up in the got up in the air, and nobody's doing anything. And this guy in white, uh, uh, Corman, there in white, who's there to help us, he said, "Hey guys, it's over. You're going home." And that broke it. You know that we just started screaming and cheering. Pat each other. There's some pictures, guys. You know, there's some photos of pictures, guys screaming on their veins in their neck, and uh, so cigars. Excellent. So you were right back, feeling like you're on your way home. It was real. It was so real. When we come back after this break, we're going to talk a little bit about your being home, and then I've got a special guest going to come on and help us understand a little bit about peace. I can't wait for your special guest. Okay. (laughs) We'll be right back after this word. (laughs) Roll call. We'll be right back after these messages. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the state with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. You're listening to Roll Call. Here's your host, Kenny DeCamp. Yeah, we're here with Mike Burns, just just completing. He's finally, after 56 months, is on a C-141. He's heading home. What was the first place you landed? The Philippines. In the Philippines. And then from there, how long? A couple days in the hospital and then to uh, Hawaii just for a gas stop, I guess. And then flying back over the country. I got up in front of that, that cockpit where that... I'm not sure what it was. Maybe it's still the C-141, but 
as I could see the coast of California coming. We're about 40,000 feet. And I watched it as it, we passed over it. I tell you, Kenny, that's the first time I felt safe. I thought if we go down now, it's okay. <laughs> Honestly, it, just like, it was like something could happen. They're going to turn us around and go back. But once we got over that, I thought, yeah, we're home. And your, your transition, was it? Uh... Well, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I first got back. I mean, it, it, I wanted to live. And um, so I bounced around seeing friends. We had some of the guys were from Boston. I spent a lot of time out there. And um, I, one of my best friends in Spokane. And uh, I um, decided to apply to law school and finished in the, the three years at Indiana University in Indianapolis. My whole family was Indianapolis. They'd been out. I hadn't seen him in five years, so I wanted to stay at home for a couple of years just just to get reacquainted. I mean, there were nieces and nephews and married, you know, people getting married that I didn't know about until I got home. So, and after that, uh, well, during that, the last year of that law school, I knew I wanted to live by the ocean. So I applied to seacoast towns all around the country and ended up in Sarasota. Oh, that long ago. So you've been here a long, long time. 79, I think. Okay, now I, I've called you the climate champion because I think this is something that's probably healed a lot of the inner wounds that you've had, both mentally and psychologically, physically, and internally. I mean, we can make up all those kind of words about what you're doing now because we all have this feeling of what's happening to our climate. Uh, our people are still denied, but we are the ones that know that things are turning. This project you have, it's at, it's at the celery fields. You've got a Rotary Club involved with you. You've got people that are against red tide, which we have very big problems with here. You've got some environmental steward teams that have gotten, and most of all, it's the Florida Veterans for Common Sense. Tell uh, our folks listening, what is this celery field sure. tree? Sure. Well, actually, it was um, you know something our group talked about, but the Pentagon, you know, we came out with climate change is a national security issue. And it really makes sense. People are losing land. There's vast migrations. There's uh, parts of Africa drying up. Uh, it's very bad what is happening. And so we decided to attack climate change. And one of the ways was planting trees. Terry Root, I think, and a couple of other speakers. She's a Nobel laureate, spoke to our group. And part of her thing was trees, plant trees. That's one of the best things you can do. So we worked with the county and got um, permission to, to, for this spot of land. We found, got some donations from uh, Michael Saunders, from the Rotary Club, our own internal funding, uh, Pat and Leslie um, from up a little north of here. They, they donated quite a bit of money, and I got... I went looking for a nursery in Florida, found McKeithen up at Mayaka, north of Mayaka City. He's given us some really good deals, and he supplied all the trees, and we planted forests out at celery fields. Everyone should go look at this. It is a beautiful thing, and it's, it's developing. The trees are, are taking root. We've lost, out of 250-plus trees, we've lost five or six. 
So that's a that is a really well, good deal. How many trees? Two hundred and fifty plus trees, about two hundred fifty five actually. And we started another microforest uh, at Stony Brook, and they planted most of eleven hundred trees. And uh, the idea of a microforest is that you plant three trees in a square one square meter, and that is supposed to produce some sort of competition that helps trees grow faster. So this Japanese fellow who developed this microforest deal said, um, er, he wrote that you can make a, 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 a forest in 10 years do what it should do in 80 or 90 years by this competition. So we're very proud of that. We had a bunch of volunteers help us. The community is behind us. Anybody else wants to come out and help us do so? Are we finished? No, no, we're oh. still going. We're just going to bring another guest out. Oh, yeah, right. And, um, and the Florida Veterans for Common Sense were the ones that came We We spearheaded time. this whole thing, and, and we've directed the monies. We've, um, uh, 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 <coughs> we are on the hook with the county for maintaining this forest for, the, for three years since we planted, mm -hmm. and the first year was October 2020. We had a great, like 40 or 50 volunteers from the community, kids, students, people my age, and um, and I'm 77, and I, I I tell you this is one of the best things I've done in, in my life. And at one time we're bombing, blow, blowing holes in the earth, but now we're digging holes and planting trees, and it all is going to help. This trees sequester carbon from the atmosphere and bury it. They, they release oxygen into the atmosphere. They provide a habitat for wildlife. They mitigate stormwater damage. They suck the nutrients, the roots do, <coughs> out of <coughs> stormwater runoff. They calm storm winds. They offer us so much. And if you just stand by a tree and look at it and think about what it gives each one of us, You'll volunteer and come out and help us. Exactly. That's what I could see. You know, I could, why I titled this show uh, POW to Climate Champion is you can see why the, the passion that Mike has for this. And it's, it's, I'm sure it's been a healing method, too. And so much so that when we were the other day at, after Veterans uh, Parade, we ended up at Fogartyville Center. And um, I met Bill Schustek. And uh, I, tell me about this song you that I threw at them? Yeah, me, yeah. Real quickly and then play some. Okay. I got to tell you, the Veterans for Common Sense, what a group of guys and ladies. <laughs> People. What a group Excellent. of folk. Excellent. Song written by Henry Clay Work. We're going back a century or more. Uh, yeah, more. Uh, 1880s. Uh, Henry Clay Work wrote some of the great battle songs of the Civil War. Uh, in fact, a Confederate captain uh, shortly after the war told a Yankee captain that the Yankees wouldn't have won the war except for the fact he had to admit maybe they had better songs. That war was fought with music. But then, the second to last song this man, this musical warrior, wrote in the 1880s is called The Silver Horn. It's a veteran's plea for peace, that peace is patriotic. It's been my experience that 
the, if you can call them, great warriors that I have met have always been great advocates of peace. So here's the fella. He's lying on his bed. He's dying. And he see he's a bugler. He was a bugler in the Civil War. And, of course, you didn't have radios. The only way that you could communicate through the smoke and the din of battle was by bugle and by drum. And there hanging the foot of his bed on the wall opposite is his silver horn. And he addresses his silver horn. Henry Claywork. Come rest with me now, my silver horn. My melodious joy, my silver horn. These many long years, my constant friend. Together let our toiling end. Yet fain would I ask, were mine the choice for a moment of strength to give thee voice, one silvery peal ere life shall cease. But not for war. For blessed peace. Yes, once again rings sweet silver horn. That long ago rang on battle morn. From vale and glen that summoned them to arms, to arms, a thousand men. For peace ring now, for peace ring high, ring a welcoming peal that shall not die. Till mountain and mountain. The earth around Responsive songs In echo sound Thy whispers I hear My silver horn My melodious joy My silver horn They comfort me all with such control. I think you have a living soul. Then cherish we both one calm content for the land that we loved, our powers were spent. And o'er the turf the greens are gray For ages may Her banner wave Yes, once again ring Sweet silver horn That long ago rang A 
from Vale and Glen that summoned them to arms, to arms, a thousand men. For peace ring now, for peace ring high, ring a welcoming peal that shall not die. Till mountain and mound, the earth around, responsive songs in echo sound. I kiss the adieu, my silver horn, my melodious joy, my silver horn. Then suddenly loose the bugler's class. His kiss was but a dying gasp. Yet marvels of power can love evoke. At the touch of his lips, the bugle spoke, and wondrously sweet and clear and strong. From thence out rang a silver song. Yes, once again ring sweet silver horn that long ago rang on battle morn from vale and glen that summoned them. To arms, to arms, a thousand men, for peace ring now, for peace ring high, wing a welcoming peal that shall not die, till mountain and mound, the earth around. Responsive songs in echo sound. That's it tonight. We thank you for listening to Roll Call on the Veterans Broadcast Network. Mike, Bill, and Lisa, thank you for being here tonight. Wow. Thanks for listening. Join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Central. On the Veterans Broadcast Network, this is Roll Call. Attention, looking for semi-drivers nationwide. GTS Transportation of Burr Ridge, Illinois, is looking to hire a partner with experienced CDL holders in every state. If you are going to drive, why not drive for the best? Whether you are driving solo, as a team, or as an owner-operator, GTS is looking to add you to their rapidly growing company. Become part of one of the most respected, driver-friendly, and successful transportation companies in America, where drivers are treated as royalty. Contact us at gtscarrier.com. Again, gtscarrier.com. Or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again 
847-754-4667. We would love to help you, which in turn helps everyone. GTS is an equal opportunity employer. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Radio Broadcast for over 15 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution have been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. 